The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. It is a joyous occasion, again, to be able to be together. Despite the circumstances that we're under, we were so thankful last week, and once again, we're thankful this week. And we're thankful to see some faces that weren't here last week because of illness. Um, it's wonderful to see you once again and to be able to worship our God together. Just as a very quick reminder, if you haven't got your Lord's Supper emblems, they're at the back now, not on the front, on that little table at the back wall. And so make sure you have that before the Lord's Supper is, is served um, after the lesson. Um, thankful so much to Bobby for his songs. He does an excellent job in leading us in song and, and our uniformity of voices. And we, when we praise God, it's been so edifying and encouraging, and I appreciate your selection. The invitation song, Trust and Obey, is actually what we're going to study in our evening sermon on the live stream, so I appreciate that as well. It's a shame that we can't have an invitation song right after that, Trust and Obey, but that'll even help us prepare our minds for the lesson this evening, and I encourage you to tune in for that on Facebook Live and go to meeting at 6 o'clock um, this evening, and we'll study about that. It's just a joy to be with you and wonderful to see you here this morning. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, we see the foundation for everything uh, that we do and believe. In the beginning, God created. And we know that's foundational because we have a creator and we being his creatures are amenable to anything that he says. That's our purpose. He created us. As Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, to fear him and keep his commandments. And in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul kind of elaborates on that creation. We know that it wasn't just the Father that was there, but God said, that's the word, as we see reflected in John 1 and verse 1, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So Paul elaborates on that a little bit in Colossians 1 and verse 15, speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And so we see part of that creation that was created through the agency of Christ, the word. There are the visible things that are created, the heavens and the earth the sea, the the uh, creatures, the herbs, everything that we see there in Genesis chapter 1 and also human beings in Genesis chapter 2 is elaborated upon as well. But he also adds invisible. And so there's two facets of creation. There is that which we can see and that which we can't see. Paul explains in First, Second Corinthians 4.18 that the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are not seen are eternal. So there's the temporary and there's the eternal. There is the seen and there is the unseen. And a key member of God's creation, really the pinnacle of God's creation that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, possesses both natures. In Genesis 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, if you will. There is the dust of the earth nature, and the breathed in nature. There is the visible nature of man, and there is the invisible nature of man. And that visible nature, as Paul alluded to in 2 Corinthians 4.18, is but temporary. 
but the invisible is eternal. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 explains that the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. But I want us to understand, going back to Colossians 1, that when God created, he, did just, he didn't just set in motion chaotic action, but when he created, he established created law. We see that in Colossians 1 in verse 17, when it says that Christ is before all things and in him all things consist. The New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version says in him all things hold together. Why is it that there is order? Why is it that there is not chaos? Because in creation was also created law. And in Christ, not only were all things brought forth, but all things are held together. They are consisting in him. The Hebrew writer explains that that is accomplished by his word when he explains in verse 2 that God has spoken to us in these last days by his son, he adds that he is the express image of God's person and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so in creation, the word was the agency through which creation ensued. And it is the agency as well in which creation is sustained. In him, all things consist. And while there are others who dwell in the visible, and others who dwell in the invisible, only one possesses both visible and invisible. The animals only possess the visible, and the angels and other spiritual creatures only possess the invisible. And so with us, those who have the dual nature, the creation of the dust of the ground nature and the breathed into nature, the visible and the invisible, there are two sets of laws which we are concerned with. There is the set of laws that uphold all things that are visible by the word of his power. And there are the set of laws which uphold all things that are invisible by the word of his power. And where the animal creation is only concerned with the visible set of laws, the laws of nature... And they are not concerned with the laws that are spiritual because they don't have anything to do with them. And where you have things like the angels who have to submit to God, we know there are disobedient angels who are only concerned with what is the invisible laws that are spiritual that are given to them by God. They are not concerned with the visible laws of nature. Yet we are concerned with both. The natural laws are of man's concern if he is to thrive on earth, but also the spiritual laws governing the invisible are necessary to be considered by man if they are to thrive spiritually and possess that eternal blessedness with their invisible nature. And might I suggest that both sets of laws are immutable. They are unchangeable. None can change them. God has set them forth and they are plainly and simply put forth and will not change whatsoever. The only exception is when God enters into the natural and suspends natural law, and we call that a miracle. But none other can change any of it. And so those who seek to defy either sets of laws are going to fail miserably because you cannot change them. You must abide by them. Consider firstly the natural laws of God. They are, of course, unchangeable, immutable. 
And there are several that we could discuss, and by, uh, by no means am I an expert, obviously, but they're ones we're familiar with, if not for the terminology that is used to describe them, just our understanding of them in everyday life. Consider the law of biogenesis, which is another way of saying the law of life. This is one which evolutionary individuals, those who hold to evolution, hate. They, they, they hate this concept. Because the law of biogenesis means only life can come from life. And those who teach evolution suggest that at one point, life came from lifeless chemicals. And there's no way of explaining that through observation. It cannot be proven. But the only thing that can be proven is that life only comes from life. You cannot bring forth life from something that does not possess life. And that's observable in many different ways. And if life brings forth life, then it's also true in the law of biogenesis that the kinds bring forth only their kind. And that's set forth in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. In other words, if you want an apple tree, you cannot plant orange seeds, and so on and so forth. But also it is true with the animal creation. In verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You cannot breed canines with felines because of the law of biogenesis, each according to its kind. And that is an unfailing truth and standard. And we live by it each and every day. We understand the law of biogenesis. But there's also laws of chemistry within created natural law. Consider the human body that is made up of many different kinds of chemicals, oxygen, nitrogen, potassium, magnesium, iron, so on and so forth. We are carbon-based life forms, if you will, as well. And there are are many other chemicals that are involved in the human body, and they're powered by our body's chemical reactions. We require oxygen or else our organs shut down. We require water, which is an essence of life. It's essential to life and is itself a chemical compound. But even consider especially something at the forefront of our minds during our current um, distress in our nation and globe the medicine that we turn to for care and for health so often, all of that is based on fundamental laws of chemistry. And the reason why modern medicine is light years in advance compared to the past is because of the continued discovery and understanding and honing in these laws of chemistry. And this is important because you've got to use the proper medicine for the proper ailment in order for there to be success. But not only that, it has to be the right dosage. Or maybe you won't have enough and it won't do anything for you. Or maybe you have way too much and you die. And it's an exact science. And we appreciate that. And we believe in it. And we never try to contradict these laws of chemistry because it can be fatal. Consider the laws of planetary motion, how the planets orbit and move. A person by the name of Johannes Kepler discovered three laws of planetary motion that they orbit in ellipses. 
not round like was thought before. And they sweep out equal areas at equal times. That is, they speed up as they get closer to the sun within their orbit. And it has to do with the law of gravity. And he discovered an exact mathematical equation that is, is never wrong. It's across the board, uh, a law that he's discovered between the planets distant from the sun, the relationship between that and its orbital period, which is why we can literally set our watches by the orbits of planets and the stars and so on and so forth. And what do you know? In Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament above the, of the heavens to divide the night from the, uh, the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And if these laws were altered, just how close each planet gets to the sun and just how fast it moves and spins, then we would cease to exist. They're that intricate and that pointed. They're created by God and they're unchangeable. And all of these really go back to a fundamental law where everything else and more of the laws we haven't even discussed fall back on as a foundation, and that's physics. It is the most fundamental law of the universe and set of studies concerning the universe. It concerns light, how light propagates, how energy is transported, how gravity operates, and how mass moves through space and many other phenomena. The laws of physics are basic to existence and we understand them we may not be able to explain them in a scientific fashion but we understand the laws of physics for example gravity if gravity did not exist we would be sucked into outer space and we appreciate gravity if not but subconsciously we know we need it consider also the poly exclusion principle with a man named poly discovered and studied that two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time that's why when your hand is in the car door and you shut it, you say, ow, because two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Everything we do relies upon these laws of physics. And thanks be to God that they are unchangeable laws so that there can be order. And consider, lastly, the laws of logic. Yes, we have laws of logic. In fact, all of these descriptions of these fundamental laws before they were given a name, before they were given a title in references to studies and such that we can go back to as a, a standard and a pattern to consider more discoveries. They were discovered through logic. They were understood by observation and the human mind being sound and logical. And that's why, as they are unchangeable, we can continue to discover more things because we know that those things cannot change and we look at the other things through observation with logic. Consider the law of logic that is the law of non-contradiction, which basically states, in simple forms, you cannot have both A and not A at the same time. We use that all the time. And that's why we have such success, or we should anyways, in the court of law. That's why law works. When there is a trial and a lawyer stands up and says, my client was in this place at this time when the murder occurred, and he has witnesses to that, that's why that is so strong and powerful in the court of law. Because if he's here, he can't be here at that same time. The laws of logic are important. And with all of that, consider the uniformity of nature. All of these coexist logically, as we've just demonstrated. 
And they're consistent throughout time and space. Science depends upon the consistency of these laws. If they were changeable, if they were inconsistent, if, if one day the law of gravity says this and the next day the law of gravity says we're going to start floating little by little, then there would be an inconsistency and all science is thrown out the window. You cannot make new discoveries and you cannot make decisions that are sound if there is not a uniformity of nature. How are they uniform? Colossians 1.17 in Christ, all things consist. And if they are immutable, let me suggest to you that they are therefore impartial. That's why we never try to take action with the thought, the assumption that the laws of nature are going to change to conform to the action we've taken. We do the reverse of such. We understand the laws of nature and we take action based upon our logic and our knowledge of those laws of nature. And so we're not going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute because we know gravity and how it works and we know it won't change to suit our actions. And so we've got to have the laws of physics in mind and have that parachute on our back. And with that, it is impartial, which means that if an individual jumps out of the top story of the tallest building in the world, they will die, whether they're a hardened criminal or an infant who is completely pure and without fault. They are impartial. And everyone understands these truths, and that's why nobody in their right mind tries to defy them and seeks to actually win. We will fail every time. We act according to what the laws of nature say. Those are the laws of the visible that are created. But consider also these spiritual laws which govern the invisible, which are especially something that is important to the created being, mankind, who has both the visible and invisible nature. Understanding that also the spiritual laws are immutable laws. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And we discussed that that's how it works with regard to the physical law. That because God spoke into existence all that we see and know, He also implemented these natural laws and are upheld because the Word of God is true and unchangeable and certain and powerful. And we can rely upon it. In Psalm 33 in verses 6 through 9, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done and he commanded and it stood fast. That's exactly what we just discovered. He spoke into existence by his word, all that we see physically. And all that we see physically stands fast by that same creative word. And if that's the case for the creation of the visible, how much more so the creation of the invisible and it's being held together by the word of God. In Psalm 33, same Psalm, verse 4, it says that the word is of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his goodness, of the goodness of the Lord. His word is right and what his word suggests in the invisible governing laws is that he loves righteousness. He loves justice. 
And if he loves righteousness and he loves justice, and that's an immutable spiritual law regarding God and therefore how he reacts and acts with man whom he's created in the visible and invisible nature, then what of the unrighteous? They will fail just like the man fails who seeks to fly by jumping out a window because the laws of gravity cannot change, nor can the spiritual laws of God. He loves righteousness, not unrighteousness. Psalm 50 describes some who seek to defy God's spiritual laws, which are immutable, and they are shown to fail miserably. In verse 16 of Psalm 50, to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? In other words, they'll declare the spiritual law of God and in their action, they'll completely ignore it. They throw it away like trash. And God's saying, you have no right to take my law and blaspheme my name in that regard. Notice what he says, though, in verse 21 of Psalm 50. These things you have done after he lists some sins. And I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. In other words, you think that you can defy the laws of God where you speak them and then contradict them with your actions and think you're going to get by with that. And you think that I think like you. You think I'm altogether like you, that I can speak a spiritual law into existence and then turn my back on it and contradict it the next day by letting your unrighteousness go without judgment. But I'll set these things in order. In other words, you cannot defy spiritual laws and be victorious. They will be sustained and we will crumble beneath them if we seek to defy them. We see so many examples of this in the scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain offered a sacrifice along with his brother Abel, but his sacrifice was not respected. Hebrews 11 illustrates that it was because Abel offered his by faith and Cain did not. In other words, He defied in some way or fashion exactly the detail we don't know. He defied in some way or fashion the directions of God concerning his sacrifice. Faith comes by hearing the word of God and Cain did not offer his by faith. He defied a spiritual law and failed. In Numbers chapter 22, Balaam, the prophet of Moab, was was encouraged and bribed by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. And he gave them this promise of treasures, but it was God's instruction that Balaam not go with the men of Balak. And because he was an individual of lust and he was materialistic, he took the bribe and he went in spite of God's word. And that was sin before God. He was rebuked for his iniquity by his own donkey in Second Peter 2. It illustrates that in the New Testament, and that is recorded for us in Numbers 22. Remember Korah in number 16 who rebelled against God by rising up against Moses and Aaron claiming that they took too much upon themselves when in reality they were simply instructed by the law of God to serve in the capacity with which they served and it was their duty to submit to that spiritual law. But Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and the people with them defied the spiritual law of God and his order which was unchangeable by them and their feeble ways and they perished. The earth swallowed them up and others were torched, literally, and lost their lives. Or as Jude describes the false teachers in his epistle, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And it stands to reason that those spiritual laws 
of defying God's authority, at least on the fundamental surface, which was involved in the old law and the new law. You cannot stand against what God has instructed and authorized that thousands of years ago it didn't work and they failed and lost their lives and souls. And in the future, these individuals who are false teachers were making the same mistakes Cain, Balaam, and Korah made. And like with natural law, therefore, these laws are impartial. In Romans 2 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul said that God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. That's a law that is set in time as immutable. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it was a physical Jew who was a called person of God under the old law, or a Gentile, as we know good and well in our recent studies Romans is addressing, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for the Jew and the Greek. didn't matter who it was. God is impartial. His law is impartial. To do evil is to secure eternal death. And to do good according to God's will is to set up spiritual treasure. And we need to understand that. As much as we understand gravity will defeat us if we seek to defy it, we need to understand that the spiritual law of God will condemn us if we seek to defy it. God is true. Let Him be true. And let us submit to His spiritual laws always. Consider two spiritual laws of God that are immutable. First and foremost, foundational to all of our concerns is the spiritual law of salvation that God has set forth. And it doesn't matter matter who we are, man, woman, child, an individual from a foreign country or one who is here home in America or one who lived in the first century or one who lives 20 centuries from now, if the Lord wills that time continues that long. The spiritual laws of God have been set 2,000 plus years ago when Christ was nailed to the cross. He ascended to heaven and received a kingdom and they cannot be changed. As much as the law of gravity is true, the law of God is true and we must submit to it if we are to thrive and survive. That law is given to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, where in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. God's law of salvation is described there in Romans 8 and verse 2 as the law of the Spirit. And we understand that to mean the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit reveals God's law through inspiration. That's why in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And this is what he says in application. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Why, Paul? Because there is an immutable spiritual law that God has set forth, the law of salvation revealed by the Holy Spirit, or the law of the Spirit of life. And if you sow to that Spirit, if you if you do what the Spirit says, you sow that seed in your life by action and belief and faith and trust and obedience, then you will reap everlasting life. But if you sow to the flesh, you defy the Spirit, in other words. You don't submit to that law. You will reap corruption. Remember in verse 1 of Romans 8, he says 
This is something which blesses those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They lead a spiritual life. And Romans 8 goes on to demonstrate that that is accomplished by submitting to the law of the spirit. They're freed from sin and death as they submit to God's law. And so there's a necessary question that we need to ask. It's an important one. Will one be lost without the gospel? And I would assert to you very clearly that, yes, they will be lost without the gospel. You know, I'm sure that you've experienced it as well, but I've had some conversations with Christians, members of the Lord's church, who try to reason that God's grace will cover those who are in the denominations, that God's grace will cover those who have never heard the gospel, that God's grace will cover those who are sincere in their actions and they just haven't had the opportunity to obey yet. And the question all boils down to this. Will one be lost without the gospel? If you say yes, you conform to that law of the spirit. If you say no, you stand in defiance to it. Because this is what Romans 1 and verse 16 says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Notice that simple phrase, for it. It is referring to the gospel of Christ, he stated before. What is the power of God to salvation? The gospel of Christ. So it stands to reason if you do not believe in the gospel of Christ, as it's only the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, then you don't have the power of God to salvation. We might ask the question, who's able to save man from their sins? God is. How does he do it? The gospel of Christ is his power to salvation. It's as simple as that. This is why Jesus stated in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, When he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he said, he who believes is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Why? Because the law, which is immutable for salvation, states that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What if they don't hear, though? We're told in Romans 10 and verse 18 that it is necessary to hear, or rather verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? The answer is they can't. And so they have preachers sent. And for Israel, Paul says, I say, have they not heard? And he says, yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's saying Israel has no excuse. The gospel is proclaimed to them. They just rejected it. What if someone doesn't hear, though? Because hearing's necessary. You can't obey or believe something you haven't heard. Again, the question is, must you believe the gospel of Christ to be saved? Absolutely. Must you hear to believe? Absolutely. What if you don't hear? You will not be saved. It's as simple as that. The law of God is impartial. Well, someone will say then that a person's soul dies because they have not believed the gospel. And you know what? That's true. But they're trying to place the blame on the gospel. God will not send a person to hell simply because they did not believe in something they've never heard before. And outpours the hypotheticals which murky the waters in the first place instead of just submitting to what the gospel says. But what they have is things turned around because it's never God's fault that man will be lost. It's not the fault of the gospel which they have not heard that they're lost. The whole reason the gospel was ever introduced to mankind is because of the problem of sin which Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 does not state that those who have never heard the gospel are dead because of that. Even though that is true, it says the soul who sins shall die. Let's never forget the cause for spiritual death. 
consider the relationship between a poison and an antidote. If an individual is poisoned and they receive the antidote for that poison, they will live. But if they don't receive the antidote, there is no logic in saying, well, perhaps they'll still live because the antidote is what saves them. But they didn't die simply because they did not receive the antidote. What if they never were poisoned in the first place and they didn't receive the antidote? They would live primarily because they don't need the antidote because they weren't poisoned. But even if someone gave them an antidote, they'd still live. But if they didn't have poison in their system and they didn't receive the antidote, will they not live because they didn't receive the antidote? No, because they don't have poison in their system. Why did they die if they didn't receive the antidote and they were poisoned? Not from not receiving the antidote. I mean, in a way you could say that, certainly. They died from the poison. People who don't hear the gospel, it's not the gospel's fault. It's the fact that they've sinned and they didn't receive the panacea for sin. And so because it's an immutable law, And it's an unchangeable law, therefore, and it is certainly a law that is impartial. They will not be saved. Second Thessalonians one and verse eight says that God will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Consider one more thing in relationship to this. We know that Christ is the solution to our sin problem. And that's why in Romans eight and verse two, it does not just say that The law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. It says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, because that is God's means of saving man. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Why? Because it speaks of Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection, which declares him to be the son of God. And it's explained furthermore in Romans chapter eight and verse three for what the law of Moses, that is, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are made righteous by the death of Jesus on the cross. And so an individual who wants to ask that question, thinking that there's a loophole. Well, what about the person who has not obeyed the gospel? Or what about a person who has never even heard the gospel? Will God send them to hell? They need to ask the question. What about the individual who is without the blessed gift of the death of Christ, can they be saved? And we understand that that just cannot be so. Because the reason the gospel is the power of God to salvation because of Christ Jesus. Romans 1 and verse 17, it says that the righteousness of God is revealed, that is in the gospel, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What do they have to have faith in? They have to have faith in Christ. You can't have faith in Christ without him being proclaimed. And that's what the gospel does. Can you be saved without Christ? No, you can't be saved without the gospel. Therefore, either because the righteousness of God, Romans three twenty one, apart from the law is revealed. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference. He explains why, because God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. But that's through faith and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is an immutable law of God. None can be saved without the gospel. And so it's foolish for someone to try to deceive themselves and convince themselves otherwise. Consider one more spiritual law that is immutable that we all need to be aware of, especially those who have been added to the body of Christ by that gospel, that there is a law of spiritual growth which cannot be changed and cannot be defied. Consider how one grows spiritually. Understanding first what we quoted in Romans 1.17, 
that that righteousness of God, that is the way we're righteous before God revealed in the gospel, what brings us to salvation, what its revelation is, is that the just shall live by faith. In other words, spiritual life is in faith. If you want to stand just before God, if you want to have life spiritually before God, then you must live by faith. Hence, the apostles request in Luke 17, 5 to Jesus, increase our faith. Why? Because spiritual life consists in faith. But how would that occur? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we're to grow spiritually, that is grow in spiritual life and that life be sustained It must be done through faith, but without the gospel and our study of it, we cannot grow spiritually and we will just waste away. That is an immutable spiritual law. If you want to grow and therefore get to heaven, you cannot do it any other way than hard work and studying God's word. That is why God calls it the daily bread, of course, spiritually speaking. Remember, Jesus said man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is certainly true. It is an immutable spiritual law. That's why the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, to these people who had become Christians, lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, and as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That word thereby is, as Strong shows us, a primary preposition denoting position and instrumentality. He says, grow thereby, and it points back to what? The pure milk of the word. In other words, there's an immutable spiritual law that is put forth by God that if you are to grow spiritually, you can only do it by the word of God. If you seek to do it in any other way, you will fail miserably. The gospel also shows us the immutable spiritual law. That is, if you're not progressing, then you are regressing and near to losing your soul. Remember in Hebrews 12 or 5 and verse 12, when he addressed these people that though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. They had not progressed in the word of God and therefore had gone back to infancy. What's the next step? Completely losing their spiritual life. You cannot grow without conformity to the law of spiritual growth. Any other way produces the opposite results, including just not doing anything. And we should understand that. Consider the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossian brethren in Colossians 1 and verse 9. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's speaking of spiritual growth and time and again he gives synonyms for the knowledge of God's will. He actually says the knowledge of his will. He mentions wisdom and spiritual understanding and the knowledge of God. And that's how we produce the fruit of God, which spiritual life of which spiritual life consists. But notice in chapter 2, he goes on to show them the folly in trying to defy that spiritual law of spiritual growth. You cannot grow in Christ in any other way than Christ's law. He says in chapter 2 and verse 4, 
Now this I say, lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He continues in verse 8. Beware lest some anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And after he enumerates some more things which cannot cause them to grow spiritually, in verse 23 he says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He says, don't let anyone cheat you through persuasive words, philosophy, the tradition of men. You know, there are some Christians who seek to grow spiritually through those mediums. And what they're essentially doing is seeking to defy the spiritual law of spiritual growth God has implemented, which is unchangeable and it is impartial, and they're failing miserably. And what they're doing is being caught up in man's wisdom, and they are always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, like those women that are described as in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the false teachers subvert those whole households and they are a part of. They look to self-help and self-health materials and spiritual material from erring sources. And they look to philosophy and all of these things. And they feel built up and they feel emotional and all of these things. But you cannot defy and come out victorious a spiritual law. That's not spiritual growth. By the standard of the gospel, it's not. But what does he say in verse 6? He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How? rooted and built up him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The faith, the object of faith. Verse 9, For in him, that is Christ, was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We might ask the question, the very important question today, are you consistently growing spiritually? And I hope that we can say yes, but if someone says yes, I am consistently growing spiritually. I am more mature today than I was yesterday, but there has not been a consistent study of God's word. That's a false statement because you cannot defy an immutable law of God and come out victorious. Any more than you could an immutable natural law of God and come out victorious. This is understood in nature. We need to understand it in spiritual nature. And also take solace in the fact that because it's an immutable law, if we conform to it, we are guaranteed success. How do you not die from gravity jumping from a building? Stay on the ground. Every time you go up, you risk. The world is full of risks. But you can't die from that if you always stay on the ground, at least not in that way of jumping out the building. I imagine, obviously, you could otherwise. But conform to the natural law. Understand it, study it, realize it, observe it, and then fall in line with it. Decide what you're going to do based on what you've observed in natural law, and you'll survive for a long time. How much more so abiding by the spiritual law? We will be successful. The Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.13. In verse 15, he says, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them. And what will happen? That your progress may become evident to all. You will progress spiritually if you do this. Not only will you progress, but everyone's going to see it. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 
Whereas Peter records in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no shortcut, brethren. There is only the immutable spiritual law of spiritual growth that we must submit to if we are to grow spiritually. And if we aren't giving time to God's word and the study of it, it is impossible for us to achieve any kind of spiritual abundance and growth. If you are here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord, understand that that law is immutable and impartial as well. It doesn't matter what your feelings are, what you think, or what you thought, or what someone else thinks. If you have not obeyed the gospel, you will not be saved. That is the only way. And so we invite you to do that this morning by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. If there's any other spiritual thing we can assist you with, we invite you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.